All right, let's get started. Good morning. Did you guys have fun at the keynote? Great. Uh, my name is Jill Shavina Stoddart. I'm with Amazon Web Services, and I'd like to introduce Ben Salt, who joins us today from New Zealand. And um, he's here to talk about his company's cost optimization journey with AWS. Uh, Ben's company, Zero is a uh, SaaS provider to small businesses. So thank you very much and for joining me today. Thanks, Joe. Okay, I'm going to start today's session by going through the different Microsoft licensing options with AWS. Then I'll go through best practices for your cost optimization journey for your Microsoft workloads. Ben will take the rest of the session then to share with you his experiences over the last two and a half years migrating to AWS. So let's start with the Microsoft licensing options. AWS has the most flexible Microsoft licensing options to help you optimize your costs. First, we offer pay-as-you-go licenses on both EC2 and ECS, as well as RDS. You can also bring your own licenses to AWS. You can bring Microsoft licenses to EC2 using your license mobility benefits, or you can bring licenses including Windows Server to AWS, even without paying software assurance. Let's dive into these options. License-included instances offer you many advantages. First, AWS manages the Windows AMI image for you so that you don't have to build and manage these instances, these images. Of course, license-included uh, uh, instances are pay-as-you-go, which are ideal for spiky workloads as well as a dev test environment. It makes it easy to charge back the full license cost to the appropriate cost center. But best of all, you don't have to worry about annual true-ups or the potential for Microsoft Software Audit. We maintain a broad selection of both new and older versions of Windows servers for EC2, ECS, and RDS. When you use license-included instances from AWS, you do not have to pay for separate uh, client access licenses or CALs. We also offer the different versions of SQL Server from web server up to uh, Enterprise Edition. And of course, now with SQL Server 2017, we also offer SQL Server on Linux images available pay-as-you-go as well. So, now let's talk about how you can bring your licenses to AWS. But before we go into the details of how you bring those licenses to AWS, I'd like to review with you the differences between shared and dedicated tenancy on EC2. This is a very important concept when it comes to Microsoft licensing. Shared tenancy is also known as a multi-tenant server, or in AWS lingo, we call it default tenancy. This server hosts 
uh, these, this server can host uh, instances from multiple different customers, and AWS controls the placement. When you buy license-included instances from AWS, you're always on shared tenancy. A dedicated instance runs on a single tenant server. This server hosts only instances belonging to one AWS account. With dedicated instances, AWS manages which host your instance will be launched on. That means when you stop a dedicated instance and then restart it, your instance can restart on a different host. What we do make sure, though, is the host that it launches on is also only used by that same one AWS account. With dedicated instances, you pay per instance, and then we also have an hourly region fee for all of your dedicated instances. So what this means is you can run as many different AWS, uh, as many different dedicated instances in that AWS account, and you pay once for all the instances in that region per hour, in addition to your pay-per-use for the instance. Dedicated host is also a single server uh, belonging to one AWS account. Now, the difference between dedicated instance and dedicated host is that with dedicated host, you control the placement or where your instances get launched. So this means that you can start and relaunch an instance and know that it can go to the same host. This is very important when it comes to your Windows Server licensing terms. For dedicated hosts, you pay for the entire host per hour. So now that we've gone through the differences between shared tendencies and dedicated tendencies, let's see what this means with regards to bringing your own Microsoft licenses to AWS. If you have a Microsoft Enterprise Agreement, then you probably are paying software assurance for a lot of your licenses. You can take advantage of the fact that you're already paying for that and use your license mobility benefit to bring those Microsoft applications to an EC2 instance on shared tenancy. To do this, you'll be using the uh, the Amazon, uh, the Windows license included instance. And then you bring your Microsoft application with no additional costs. So what we see very commonly is, of course, people do this for SQL Server, but we also see people bringing SharePoint because they don't, they want to have all their same features of SharePoint. Uh, same with Dynamics, people like to bring that over to EC2 as well. And then don't forget, now with SQL Server 2017, you can also use your license mobility benefit on a Linux, an EC2 Linux instance in shared tenancy. Keep in mind that we do not recommend you bring Windows Server, Windows Desktop, Microsoft Office, or your MSDN licenses to shared tenancy instances. Earlier this year, we announced, a, we released a new EC2 feature called Optimize CPU. 
This feature allows you to reduce the number of available vCPUs when launching new instances. You can use this feature to save on CPU-based licensing costs when you use license mobility. For example, one of our most popular instances for SQL Server is the R5-2XL. This is really popular because it has 64 gigabits of memory, excuse me, 64 gigabits of memory, and eight vCPUs. So really good for memory-intensive database workloads. But, so for this one, you'll need to bring eight cores of SQL Server licenses for each of those eight vCPUs. However, you might love the big memory of this instance, but you have a workload that could actually run with fewer vCPUs. So with optimized CPU, you could now launch the instance with only the four vCPUs that you really need so that you're only paying for four cores of SQL Server. In this case, the total savings for the instance and SQL Server is 40%. Now, what if you want to bring your Windows licenses to AWS? Or you might still have some, uh, maybe you don't want to carry software assurance or have old licenses that you don't have software assurance on. How can you do that? AWS created dedicated hosts to ensure you can meet all of your Windows Server licensing commitments when you bring Windows Server to AWS. And you can bring those licenses even if you don't maintain software assurance. With Windows Server Data Center Edition, you can take advantage of the unlimited virtualization rights. Now, when you bring your Windows license to AWS, you are gonna need to build and manage your own Windows AMI. You can also, with dedicated hosts, minimize your SQL Server costs by licensing by physical core on dedicated hosts instead of using a SQL license for each virtual CPU. With dedicated hosts, you can also maximize virtualization benefits of SQL Server Enterprise Edition. Now, I've shown you a few different ways you can bring your own Microsoft licenses to AWS, but you still need to track and manage those licenses so that you can clear th sail through a Microsoft audit or true up. Today, we are announcing a new service called AWS License Manager. It's a one-stop solution for managing licenses from Microsoft as well as other software vendors, such as Oracle, IBM, and SAP. License Manager helps you define licensing rules, discover license usage in your, in your estate, and manage permissions as users create new instances. License Manager simplifies that software license management task across all your environments. You can use it in AWS, on-premises, or other data centers. You can also set up License Manager based on your organizational structure and processes. This new service is going to help you track and measure the Microsoft licenses you bring to AWS. And that's going to help you sail through your true-ups. But it's also going to give you a centralized view of how all your licenses are used based on your rules and prevent overages and misreporting issues 
and in the end, help you to reduce your licensing costs. So now let's look at the complete cost optimization journey when you bring your Microsoft workloads to AWS. When we talk about cost optimizing your workloads, it's really a continuous journey. First, you should start planning for cost optimizations when you're making your migration business case. After you start your migration, you should continue to learn about how your, your new cloud operations and continuously optimize your environment. Then you need to make sure you have built-in automation, automated mechanisms to measure and monitor your costs. And finally, that ultimate cost, cost optimization for Microsoft workloads is when you can start modernizing those applications. So let's go through some of those. As I mentioned, your cost optimization journey begins before migration, during the planning phase. AWS offers a migrations assessment to help you identify cost optimizations opportunities both in your infrastructure and in your Microsoft licensing. So we do this by identifying places such as where are you over-provisioning currently in your on-premises estate for peak, for peak workloads. When you come to the cloud, you can use other techniques to manage that. Of course, you're going to also look for how much are you have over and underutilized resources. And maybe you have a lot of outdated hardware that when it comes to SQL Server, you're probably overspending on your SQL Server licenses if you haven't upgraded your, um, your server in a long time. Part of our migration assessment is also helping you strategize and plan for how you can get Microsoft license savings. So we've talked about places where you can reduce CPU configurations, help to identify where in your architecture, where it's gonna be good to leverage BYOL, and plan to reduce your EA commitments in the future. One of the interesting things we've also seen is that some customers have not adapted to the new features of SQL Server standard, and they're over-provisioning with SQL Server Enterprise Edition. We have a number of Microsoft sales experts with AWS who can help you identify when, where you can potentially go and, and not overspend with um, SQL Server Enterprise Edition. We work with our partners, such as TSO Logic and Muver to do these assessments. Their tools can help you quickly discover your resources and utilizations without downloading any agents, and then provide you an understanding of your costs today and how they can be right-sized in AWS. For example, this customer we found was, had CPU utilization on premises of less than 30%. We worked with another large U.S. customer with over 70,000 employees. We found that with, when we ran, we were looking specifically at their SQL Server workloads and found, identified that they were spending over $800,000 per year for that workload. If they would have directly matched those configurations in AWS, it would look like their cost of coming to AWS for those SQL Server workloads was actually gonna go up. But 
See, using TSO logic, we were able to automatically, immediately identify how they could right-size those configurations, as well as leverage their existing licenses by using BYOL. This gave them a savings of 22% on their SQL Server workloads. Again, this was a very large company that was a lot of dollars. After you've migrated to AWS, you're going to start to learn about how to better optimize your Windows workloads. There's three key pillars for optimizing your compute costs. First, as we talked about, is right-sizing your instances. If you've done your migration assessment and planning, you're off to a good start, but you also need to continuously leverage the newest instance families to get the best price performance, as well as density. Another best practice that we'll talk about today is providing standardized instance configurations to developers. This is going to help you down the road when you start to leverage reserved instances more. The second pillar is to increase the elasticity of your compute workloads, uh, of your compute infrastructure. Experiment when you get to the cloud with using a smaller instance size. You can always expand and grow. And you can also leverage auto-scaling for those peak workloads. Use, uh, part of your strategy is also for these spiky workloads to make sure you're using license-included instances for those Windows workloads so that you're not paying all the time for those licenses. And of course, using that start-stop feature, turning off instances, uh, non-production instances uh, at night and on weekends is a great cost savings. The third pillar is to leverage all of the different EC2 purchasing options. We find that most customers, when they start their migration to AWS, generally plan that for the first year or, or more, they're going to be using on-demand. And even down the road, they'll continue to use our on-demand purchasing option for their spiky workloads. But I encourage you to start leaning in and getting into reserved instances sooner than later. And the way you can do this is with convertible reserved instances, which allow you to automatically, through an API, trade in your instances when you want to go to a different instance family. Finally, start designing in to use spot instances by making your applications more fault tolerant. The next part of the cost optimization journey is measure measuring and monitoring. There's three key tools you need to get visibility and control of your costs. Tagging, automating, and reporting. Tagging is very key for telling you who's using the resource and for what purpose. These are some of the best practices for tagging. You always want to make sure you have your cost center, identify the application or workload, but then you need an automated way to contact the user or owner of that resource and provide an expiration date for that resource. Finally, there's also ways you're going to, as you learn, you're going to provide some new um, tags to help enable your automation tooling even more. So for example, you might have, a, have them identify, do you think that this resource is going to be stable? like a SQL Server environment, or a spiky workload. 
This can help you then when you see different things happening to determine if this is a candidate for an RI. Once you understand what you're looking for, you can then invest in the mechanisms to automate identification of cost savings. And then get that information to the people who can take action on it. And that's why I said make sure you can automate, automatically contact who the resource is owned by. I've given you a list here of some different things to think about. How, how could automation help you identify instances to downsize or recommend RIs to purchase, as I mentioned earlier? Automation is the way you get to cost optimization at scale. We have a number of automation tools and reporting options, both through AWS and our AWS partner network. I encourage you to start with, start with what's provided, learn, visualize, see how you can visualize costs in new ways. Then you can use tools, these tools, and build off of them, or build off of these initial reports. Our AWS cloud economics team can also help you. Um, think about what is the right dashboard for you. If you have a particularly complex situation, they're there to help. By now, you've probably migrated some big, hairy, monolithic applications to AWS. So then what do you do? Ben's going to spend a lot of time talking about this, so let me just put this out there that you need to start isolating a team that can experiment. Start, start small with using .NET Core, and start, start small with adopting containers or trying something with serverless. This is your ultimate cost optimization for Microsoft workloads. But it's not just gonna come from getting off of proprietary software, but it's also when you can move to microservices and create more agile applications that serve your business needs. So I'm really excited to have Ben Salt come up here and talk to us about what did this really look like for Zero, and how much did they save doing all of these steps? Ben? Thank you, Jill. My name's Ben Salt, and I'm the General Manager of Platform and Reliability at Xero. Xero was born in the cloud in 2006 as a SaaS application. And Xero is re seeking to rewire the global economy by connecting millions of businesses to their advisors, banks, and each others. We have about 1.58 million subscribers, and they're mostly small, business, small to medium businesses, accountants, and bookkeepers in over 180 countries. We have over 2,300 employees in New Zealand and other countries. The key drivers that we hope to achieve during our migration to the cloud included the flexibility to deliver fast-paced innovation by discarding traditional data center lead times. We wanted to avoid building our own machine learning platform and leverage an existing platform. And we were looking to drive increased uptime and security by designing our systems to tolerate failure. On the security front, it provides great comfort that I cannot actually visit an AWS data center. 
and we were looking to decrease our time to market to help drive better business outcomes, to help small businesses flourish. From a technical point of view, we were looking to increase the elasticity of our application stack so we could expand and contract with load. We were really looking forward to being able to provision new capacity on demand and not have traditional data center lead times. And we wanted to reduce our cost to serve by moving on to an elastic platform. I'd like to talk a little bit about our migration planning and how we got on to AWS. Xero is a Microsoft Windows.NET shop. Um, and we were very heavy in our Microsoft usage. Before the move, all of our application servers ran on VMware clusters. And this meant that we had to understand hypervisor configuration, making sure that we had A and B clusters to protect against cluster failure. And this added a bunch of complexity. For SQL Server, we had four dedicated servers per SQL Server cluster. Um, and these were split across two regions. This caused SQL Server quorum issues, um, which we ended up reducing to three quorum votes. And so that meant it always required a manual failover. For our storage, it was SAN-based, which was expensive and required constant upgrades. In one year alone, we moved physical SANs three times in the data center. For backup and recovery, backups were always to disk, then to tape. And there were always issues with how long it took us to get off disk onto tape. We spent an inordinate amount of time troubleshooting those issues, and we had no recovery testing as a result. We completed our migration onto the Amazon platform in 2016. We moved 700,000 customers, 59 billion records, 500 Windows servers, and over 100 SQL Server databases. Our current architecture in Amazon, we're split across three regions, and in each of those regions, we utilize three availability zones. We now have 5,000 Amazon EC2 Windows instances, and that's a, a bit of a step up from the 500 you saw earlier, but most of that comes from being able to right-size our workloads. So we've actually scaled down the size of the instance we use, and we use a lot more of them, which helps us to uh, be flexible with our migration. Those instances use auto-scaling and ELBs. On the database front, we have now have over 20 five-node SQL Server always on clusters in two regions. For our storage backup and recovery, we now back up to Amazon S3, which is super fast compared to going to tape. We replicate that to a second region and then into Amazon Glacier. So there is just no more tape involved. And it means we're not spending any time troubleshooting tape issues. As a result, we are able to refocus that team on building automated recovery testing. So we now test the recovery of, our of a random database every week, um, which gives us extremely high confidence in our backups, something that we didn't really have in the data center. And as a result, we are now 99.9% .9 all in on AWS. From a Microsoft licensing point of view, for our elastic workloads, we use the license included option supplied by Amazon. License mobility makes the most sense for us when we optimize CPU with shared tenancy instances to control the number of virtual CPUs we need to license. This is future work for us. For our um, dedicated host licensing, we use per core host licensing. 
And this approach does require a yearly true-up, so make sure you have good audit practices. Or, as Jill mentioned earlier, look at AWS License Manager. We were a preview customer for this service, and we found it incredibly helpful to be able to load our licenses and see real-time deployments of a license across our infrastructure, as well as manage where those licenses were allocated. There are some really neat features in there that can prevent spin-up of um, machines if you don't have the licenses. So I'd really recommend you take a look at that. Before I continue, I'd like to cover off our SQL Server cluster architecture at a high level. What I'd like to point out is that this is two regions. So that red block at the top is our primary region, and the yellow block at the bottom is our secondary region. That green box, the big dark green box, is our is our, represents our Windows clustering. And we have a number of distinct um, SQL Server availability groups, each with a single database attached to the availability group. And that's represented by those blue and green stripes that you see. Those availability groups are split across two active nodes, with each node acting as the secondary for the balance of the availability groups. There is one asynchronous node in the same region hosting all of those availability groups to offload reporting and BI workloads. And then the remaining two asynchronous nodes are in our secondary region for DR purposes. I'd like to share a couple of tips on how we've managed to optimize our SQL deployment on dedicated hosts uh, to really save some SQL server licensing cost. The first tip I have is to maximize your core base licensing. Dedicated hosts allow us to license the host cores, or the physical cores in Microsoft terminology, not the instance cores. We originally used dedicated instances during the migration while we built out the automation to support dedicated hosts in our environment. One of the nice things that taking the time to build out that automation has done is we can provision that five-node cluster you just saw in two hours and there's no manual intervention required. That's ready to put a database onto it. We moved from the R3 dedicated instances onto the R3 dedicated host, using uh, so that's switching our licensing type from the virtual CPU to the physical CPU, and that resulted in an immediate 30% saving in our SQL Server license cost. My second tip is to use the features available to you in SQL Server. We use SQL Server Enterprise Edition. Um, and there's a, um, there's a feature called SQL Server Buffer Pool Extensions. That allows you to use SSD as an additional cache to the RAM that's available in the server. We found for our workloads that i3 instances were a great fit for this. They've got high memory, and they've got that local SSD that you can use. We were able to reduce our SQL Server core licenses even further by moving from R3 dedicated hosts to the I3 dedicated host. And that resulted in a further 20% saving on SQL Server. My third tip is to maximize your host density. One of the nice side effects of moving from R3 to I3 is that we were able to replace two R3 dedicated hosts with one I3 dedicated host. And this is, tends to be because newer Amazon EC2 instance types tend to support a higher instance density. And our result there was a 10% saving in EC2 cost. One thing to remember with moving to dedicated hosts 
is that you cannot mix and match the instance, instance types on that host. So for example, with the i3, you either get to run eight i3-2XLs or four, four i3-4XLs. You can't mix and match 4XL and 2XL on the same host. And my fourth tip is to utilize your software assurance benefits. Uh, there is a feature of software assurance which offers a free license for the secondary instance when attached to a paid edition of SQL Server. Use that, and in our case, that resulted in a 20% SQL Server saving. I'd like to talk about how, we've op um, how we operate and we optimize our EC2 environment now. In our test environments, we leverage burstable instances. So this is the, TT, this is the T server class. And what this enables us to do is there is a feature available um, which allows the instances to uh, burst above their uh, allocated CPU. We're currently in the process of moving from T2 to T3. Uh, and one of the key features with T3 is this always-on bursting is enabled by default. And we expect to see a 7% saving, and we find this is a good fit in our test and development environments. Look to use the newest instance families. We have a policy at zero that we will always use the current generation or minus one. So if we're using a C-class instance type, we would expect our teams to be running on C5 or C4 instance classes, if they're running on C3, they're going to get a call from me and ask them to get moving. Some of the future considerations we have for SQL Server include looking at the R5D and looking to use the optimized CPU feature so we can move back onto a shared tenancy. We expect to see about a 20% saving on SQL Server licenses if we take that approach. As Jill mentioned earlier, when she was covering her pillars, automation is key. And it's really key to anything you do inside AWS. One of the more um, cost-saving focused initiatives we have for our automation is environment shutdowns in our dev and test environment. We're not a 24 by seven operation when it comes to our development staff. So we've uh, built, we've used um, Capital One's Cloud Custodian policy logic, which is open source. Cloud Custodian is a tool that unifies dozens of tools and scripts most organizations use for managing their AWS accounts into one open source tool. It's a stateless rule engine for policy definition and enforcement with metrics and detailed reporting for AWS. Organizations can use Cloud Custodian to manage their AWS environments by ensuring compliance to security policies, tag policies, garbage collection of unused resources, and our favorite, cost management via off-hours resource management, all from the same place. Custodian policies are written in simple YAML configuration files that specify the resource types and are constructed from a vocabulary of filters and actions. Sorry, I'm all over the place. In our, in our implementation, we have one policy for each suspend, revive resource, and we can revive those resources uh, on an enacted schedule. And that gives us back about 24 hours a week of spend. 
We're looking to expand this to include our global weekend, which is about 42 hours, and for about 12 hours overnight. Implementing a tool like this is tagging dependent. At the moment, this is achieving about a 14% saving in our test environments, and we expect to increase that to around about 40% once we've implemented the global weekend and the 12 hours overnights. Another thing that you should be considering is to leverage the different EC2 price options that Amazon has available. We used on-demand exclusively for the first 27 months um, in AWS, and we now have a 70% coverage today with reserved instances. Our current RI strategy, which reflects where we are in our journey, is to use 50% convertibles, 20% standards, and 30% on-demand, and we are achieving about a 99% RI utilization with, with that, which I've been told is rather good. We purchase all of our reserved instances as a one-year commitment, and we purchase those inside the payer account as regional RIs, so they're locked to the region. And we're achieving about a 33% saving versus on-demand with that strategy. There's a couple of points to remember about this, though. When you're purchasing Windows RIs, there is a limit to how much you're going to save compared to purchasing the equivalent Linux RI. Convertibles are great when you are doing a lot of infrastructure change because you can change as your workload does. But I'd encourage you to do what we're about to do, is once you've done, that, done all those infrastructure changes, is start to lock those in as standard RIs. So we're looking to shift our um, balance from about 50% convertible to 50% standard and pick up around about 20% convertible to allow us to remain flexible. The other option to look at is using Spot. Mm -hmm. uh, we use EC2 Fleet, and that allows us to combine on-demand with uh, EC2 Spot. EC2 Fleet is only available from the uh, API or the AWS CLI. This diagram shows a typical Kubernetes cluster at zero. The worker nodes are split across three availability zones, and in our configuration, we launch 25% of those on demand and 75% on spot. For spot specifically, we ensure we request a range of instance types, and a, as each spot instance type is, and AZ is its own market. We always bid the on demand price and find this insulates us well from all but a massive run on a given instance type. The result for us has been a 71% saving on the equivalent on-demand EC2 pricing. Once we started using reserved instances, instances in anger, our usage really took off. The top graph shows our journey from on-demand to reserved instance, as well as spots starting to creep into, the use, into our usage. So you'll see there that pink line is the reserved instance hours starting to pick up, and the blue line is dropping away as our on-demand instances drop away, thanks to our reserved instance coverage. And that green line is that spot starting to, um, to creep into our environment. And that's across the last 12 months. The bottom graph just sort of shows you what the total spend looks like um, over that time. So you can see as we were quite high um, in those early months with our, our EC2 usage, it's up. And then we've started to trend down again as those reserved instances kick in. As I mentioned, we completed our migration in 2016, 
And there are a few features that weren't available at the time that are now. And I quite often get asked, what would we do differently? And uh, this, is, this is just a, a really short list on where I'd recommend you start looking. I'd look to go to EC2 fleet a lot sooner. Um, that used to be a really hard thing to do, to mix spot and on-demand together, mm -hmm. and Amazon have made that really simple now. So I think you should really take a good look at that. Limit the available instance types you have available to your developers, because if you give them everything, they will use everything. <laughs> um, and once you've limited those available instance types, enforce the use of standard RIs based on those instance types. As Jill mentioned earlier, tagging is something you should do sooner rather than later. Our primary use of tagging is as a cost management mechanism, but it also assists with some automation, such as environment shutdown, which I covered earlier. Our tagging policy requires that every AWS asset is tagged with our standard tags. We then built our own tooling to enforce tag compliance. Enforcement involved untagged resources being given in a 15-minute grace period until they were deleted. That's right, deleted. This has seen tagging compliance reach 100% in our environment. <laughs> tagging starts to come into its own when you visualize your cost. We use Cloud Health, and we really like the insights that we get. This is the EBS unattached volume split by AWS account. This allows me to tell at a glance which account owners we need to talk to. Taking that a step further with tagging, the account owner can then use Cloud Health to filter the same graph, graph and switch the category from account, in this view, to our zero product, which is one of our tags. They then know which teams they should talk to in their account. You can see the impact of surfacing that information over a six-month period. We saw a very large saving. So far, I've talked about the technology that we've used to optimize our workloads, but there are cultural changes too. For us, it began with adopting Agile. This starts to encourage you away from traditional waterfall thinking and, thinking and into thinking in small batch sizes, limiting your work in progress, and how to test and learn. Migrating to the cloud helped remove the traditional infrastructure blockers. No lead times to order hardware anymore. No resources consumed migrating from one SAN to another. It removes a whole class of slow data center problem. When you're practicing Agile, your infrastructure changes are no longer slow. DevOps just naturally happens. Product teams can move at pace, and they require support. Traditional operations teams struggle to fit into these fast-paced environments. I believe that site reliability engineering is a natural complement to this. In our case, we took our operations team and we split it into three. We retained a portion as our site reliability engineering team. We moved some of those uh, staff to work with our product teams as embedded ops staff. We started off calling them embedded ops, but they're now just part of the product teams. They just have that infrastructure specialty. And then the remaining ops folk we formed into our internal platform as a service teams, and we modeled those around how product teams work. So they work exactly the same as a product team, they just have a focus on our internal platform as a service offerings, of which SQL Server is one of them. Finally, we found that the role of DBA 
also needs to change in the DevOps environment. As such, we move to a data, database reliability engineering focus, which takes the DevOps principles and applies them to databases. Finally, as part of our modernization, we're looking to move away onto .NET Core. So why .NET Core? .NET Core allows you to use the tooling you know and love. We have a developer, uh, a Windows de developer who loves Emacs, and they can use Emacs. You can build and run anywhere, because .NET Core can build and run on Windows, Mac, or Linux. And that really gives our developers freedom, freedom of choice. Just because they develop in .NET doesn't, doesn't mean they need to have a Windows machine anymore. Side-by-side -side deployments. .NET Core supports self-contained deployments, which remain completely isolated from other .NET Core apps. If you want to run 1.0 and 2.0 .NET Core apps side-by-side, -side, you can. Almost gets rid of DLL hell. So how do you get started? There are a number of strategies that you can employ to get started, and I think it's fair to say we've probably used all three. <laughs> if you're a microservices shop, pick a small service and rewrite. If you're not a microservices shop, then the next bit of new dev you undertake, switch to .NET Core for that. If you don't have the luxury of either of those options, carve a piece off your existing distributed system and try that in .NET Core. Our approach has been to issue a mandate. There is no new development requiring Windows operating systems allowed. And we now have an aspirational goal to see at least half of our Windows fleet of 5,000 instances running Linux. Once we have more applications on .NET Core, we expect to start moving them aggressively to containers. So containers. We've done a few things with containers, mostly on ECS and Kubernetes. I often get asked, where do you start? I've found that low-risk applications are a good place. The more simple, the better. You need time to learn in production, as all the test environments in the world cannot prepare you for what production does to a system. As you work through your application, as you work through your applications, you may discover ones with local state. Stop and do yourself a favor and get the state out of the application into something like Elasticache. Just because you can write to local disk or RAM doesn't mean you should. <laughs> as you build experience, you'll be able to start estimating what converting your fleet to containers looks like. Not all workloads are a good fit for containers. Just accept this. The same is also true of serverless, especially if you have a high invocation count. Of the container workloads we've converted, we typically see a 30 to 50% saving on the equivalent EC2 on demand. So what has this meant for Xero? From a financial point of view, the finance team loves me. That's what EBITDA positive means. <laughs> Our gross margins are up to 81%, and we have 1.58 million customers. In terms of innovation, we've moved from 100 releases four years ago to over 10,000 releases in this year. Our customers have also benefited from a new class of feature focused around business advisory services, which has been enabled by getting to market faster. Thank you for your time, and I'll hand you back to Jill now. Thanks so much. I, this is not a rehearsed question. <laughs> I told him I was going to ask him something on stage. 
What was your biggest mistake? What was our biggest mistake? Goodness. Our most costly mistake. <laughs> oh, um, probably the unattached volume is a graph that you saw there. It's got quite a big number attached to it. Um, you'll notice I scrubbed the, the, the cost off the side of it. It's a good reason. <laughs> Great. Thanks so much. Thanks, Joe. So we spent a lot of time today talking about how to optimize costs by moving your Microsoft workloads to AWS. But as you've heard from Ben's story, the value of moving those workloads to the cloud is, goes far beyond lowering costs. We also heard about how Ben improved staff productivity, turned around and used that staff productivity to gain new resiliency. And most importantly, their business has been able to innovate faster. Can you believe 10,000 releases this year? Come on, let's give it up. <laughs> so typically when customers come to us, they want to justify the initial move to the cloud through cost savings and building a TCO analysis. But if you think beyond that, when you actually migrate, they realize the greatest benefits are the gains in agility, productivity, and operational resilience. Zero is a great case study of what we call the AWS Cloud Value Framework. And we have a lot of other uh, enterprises that have measured significant results. I'm sure you've heard a number of cases of Kappa One, GE, Unilever, and I have other examples here. I hope this has been a useful session for you today. I've highlighted a few related breakouts. Um, we have our leadership session coming up in this building this afternoon to talk about other new innovations coming out uh, that have come out this year for Microsoft and .NET. Uh, we talked to the, I'll highlight one other one here is our AWS License Manager Deep Dive. That's gonna happen at 7 p.m. tonight. Uh, as Ben said, that's something he's really excited about. He was uh, a preview uh, tester for us. With that, I'm gonna, uh, we have a, a 10 more minutes, so if anybody has questions, we'd certainly welcome your time. So if there's two microphones, does anybody have questions for us? Can you go to the microphone, please? If you are leaving, thank you for joining us, and uh, please fill out your surveys. Hi, thank you very Hi. much. Yeah, Microsoft recently um, made an announcement about SQL RDS licensing, where they're trying to kind of tyrannically impose restrictions they could only either do on Azure, or you can't bring your own license to RDS anymore, like you can't do BYOL anymore on RDS SQL. Is Amazon planning anything to, to mitigate against that? So you're, you're referring to that uh, you can't use, um, bring your SQL Server license to RDS. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think that one is probably, a, a, so we do still offer that on, um, on EC2. Um, so I encourage you to look at that. And then we can um, also talk about other options that you could look at. Um, of course, we didn't talk about it all today. Database migration service is another great option. So we use a lot of EC2, but we want to use more RDS. But yeah. because of this problem, now it's kind of a... So I don't know if AWS is planning to do something to help either, you know, how, you, how, the, cost, how the cost structure is set up between active and passive nodes and RDS, 
or replication or any of those any of those things because we use availability groups and we're limited now because now we have to do EC2s unless you pay double licensing for RDS or something like that. Right. Um, so I'm not. Um, uh, I can't talk about anything impossible coming in the future there. But um, you know, we can have a discussion offline. I can put you in contact with people sure. if you'd like. Other questions? All right. Well, no. we're available here after. Oh, there was another question. So sorry. Please go ahead. Hey, uh, question for Ben. So I noticed. Um, you mentioned your your team is slowly um, uh, beginning to use more open source tools. Could you envision an organization where you've maybe at some point eliminated Microsoft from your product to eliminate license costs? I think anything in the future is possible. Um, you know, to, to be re brutally honest about that, the stickiest thing for us is SQL Server. Um, we've got a lot of investment in that, uh, and I don't think we'd be getting off that anytime soon, but it's certainly something that we consider. Um, we always keep our options open there. Other questions? You, you both did a great job. Ben, Thank you. Ben, you, you briefly went over the, kind of the transition of your team from legacy type work to more DevOps, and you kind of mentioned that there was some sort of curve there that they had to get there. Can you expand on that a little bit? How did you get them geared up to do that type of work? Great question. Yeah, um, it's quite a long answer. Uh, if, you're, uh, if you're hanging around tomorrow, I've got a, uh, a talk at New Relic Stand, um, which is actually going to cover that topic in great detail um, for about 30 minutes. Um, I, I, yeah, there's, there's a, lot, a lot of moving pieces to the answer, unfortunately. Um, so, I can, yeah, I'd like to give you something short and, and snappy on that. But, um, if you come, come and have a chat to me afterwards, I can probably go into a bit more detail. So that's uh, tomorrow at the New Relic? Uh, New Relic stand, I think it's 12.30. 12.30, um, okay. I'm down for a lightning talk. Um, right. So I think, don't actually know where it is yet, but we'll find out. More questions? I have one more for you. Absolutely. Um, using EC2 Fleet, you talked about you have great cost savings there. Did you encounter any reliability or performance issues due to using Spot so in your application? Not the service, but from your application uptime and availability. So most of the things that we put into containers are stateless. Well, actually, everything we put in containers is stateless. And I think that's one of the keys to using containers, is if you keep, keep your application stateless, um, then you're going to tolerate failure quite happily. Um, and also, if, as long as you go wide with your instance spread, you very rarely get into a situation where you actually run out of spot capacity. Great. Win-win. Please go ahead. Um, we're looking at moving our development environment up into AWS. Um, you mentioned on one of the early slides that the MSDN licenses you can't bring across. Um, does that include the, you know, for bring your own license? Um, can you bring the, any of them, like the SQL Dev Edition? You can bring them to dedicated instances and dedicated hosts. Okay, but you can't run the MSDN SQL on an EC, what? normal EC2. Uh, SQL Developer Edition, yeah. you can use that on shared tenancy. Okay. This is uh, Lance Pratt, our licensing expert. 
I should have had him mic'd for the, all the good questions at the end. <laughs> but he's available afterwards if you have more licensing questions. Did you have another? All right. Well, thank you guys so much. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks.